Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an Asian, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourselves up. I told that five-story building, you're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, when they over-incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marching has never changed anything.
Hi. We're here in Eugene, Oregon. We are. You're living in a camper in a church parking lot. I am. Tell me about that. Um, well, I had an apartment for about six months and um, didn't work out so well. So it, it was a mutual termination and I couldn't find an apartment in the time that I had before I was to move out. So um, I did the next best thing. I looked for an RV on Craigslist. I had to have a roof for my kids for a little bit longer. And um, last time I was homeless, it, 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 I had the van. And um, it, it was okay, but for four people it was a little tight. So I figured, you know, I, I'd have electricity, I'd have all that. I grew up in a mobile home, so an RV wasn't going to be so hard. So I thought, it, it's, when they're bigger, it's harder because it's tighter. But um, um, we're doing it. We took off for the, for the mountains um, for a while and uh, tried that and didn't work out so well. It was beautiful. Um, would you think the weather's bad here? <laughs> the weather up there is more unpredictable. We woke up to about two inches of snow one morning. And we started a fire and it was beautiful, but... Um, it was too much to get the kids to the actual school bus stop because we were not on the school bus, I mean, the bus line. So, um... How many kids? Uh, I have four altogether, two are grown, I guess you might call them grown. Um, they got one that's about to be 18 on the 12th of July. Okay. And Mr. Fisherman, which is the nine-year-old. So, um, yeah, I have two left. And you're saying your your income was cut by a third because of health issues? It, it was. I, I've been putting myself on the back burner um, for a lot of years, you know, taking care of the kids. And um, I've had three jobs at one point. Uh, this time, you know, something started hurting me in my legs, and I just said, forget it. I'm, I'm not thinking about anybody but myself, and um, went to the doctor the next day. Well, before you found this parking program, what was it like? It was stressful. It was stressful because I didn't want to do the whole um, moving around town. You know, just, you know, oh, this, this spot's okay to sleep. Or, you know, we can only be here for a little bit of time. Um, so I, I really didn't want to do that. That's a whole, one of the reasons why I took off to the mountains because I just wanted to park it and be. That's just, I just wanted to, to be and not be bothered and, and ridiculed when, you know, facts are not even, uh, they're not even apparent. But, um, um, yeah. Um, so what's your future like? What are you doing to get out of this? Oh, um, actually, my son is ADHD, the nine-year-old, and I applied for SSI for him and I both because they, they couldn't figure out what it was that was causing the pain, and, and I've been having pain in my neck and my shoulders for about 15 years now, so I knew it was going to come to a head eventually, and um, so I decided to file for SSI for both of us.
and um, trying to get a lawyer for a child is, is really, really difficult. Um, it took me about five or six phone calls before I found one that would take a child. They would take me, but not him. And um, that's not what I needed. So um, depending on what the outcome of that, um, I have to stay off for a full year, which I'm still going to physical therapy and such, um, in order for my SSI case to persevere. If you had three wishes, what would they be? Um, a home. Um, I don't need much. I, I really don't need much. I, I don't even... Um, I can't even think of anything besides that. So, um, the other things are all really easy, doable, um... Well, thank you very much for talking to me. You're welcome. I got a... We're here in Boston. I'm sitting next to a guy who went to Dartmouth College. Has three degrees. Three degrees. You guys remember me being in Tampa. I did 60 days on the streets with my dad. And, um... We saw a lot down there. Now I'm back in Boston. And... Trying to meet the right people. And I'm, I'm sitting next to a guy who... His intelligence level is way beyond mine. I just got to hear what he has to say. I'll just show you the backdrop real quick. We've got some crazy people, and we're both sitting here talking about it and laughing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they think it's the end of the world tomorrow. They think they're all going to die. I mean, maybe it'll be quieter if they all do, but... Oh, the protesters are... What are they, warning? <laughs> warning? Warning against the end of the world tomorrow. I think it's a ploy by Budweiser. Six o'clock tomorrow, yeah. Okay, at five o'clock, I'm buying five Big Macs. <laughs> Cares about my cholesterol. <laughs> Life is over. Brother, you gotta you gotta tell him the story, man, about where you're from. Oh, you born? My buddy, my buddy's from Cleveland. He, he's Cleveland, Ohio. I came to Boston to start a new job. When I got here, it was given to someone else, and they didn't tell me. And now I'm staying in a homeless shelter. I've been looking for work since November. And I've come close very several times, but we usually want someone younger. And probably not black, but I don't know about that. I think definitely. Never, not in Boston. But in Boston, I, I, it's not a surprise. Um, but I'm finally getting some responses to my resume. And I got 14 voicemails on my phone right now. Hopefully some of them are job offers. So. Now you have a you have a PhD in aeronautics? Physics. physics? And a master's PhD in physics. From Dartmouth College and a master's in electrical engineering. <laughs> How does how does somebody who has that end up? It, it's blown me away, Dartmouth. Um, it was the sacrifice I did to take care of my parents. And one of the problems was when my father died, my house was going to be foreclosed, so I had to liquidate everything I owned to save the house. My mother had Alzheimer's, and the last thing she needed was to buy a new home or find a new place, but she didn't know where she was at the time anyway. So I said, they paid my way through school. If it takes 10 years, I'm going to make their final years safe and comfortable. So I sacrificed everything I had. All my electronic stuff, my car, all my savings, and I paid off house. So when I settled their estate, when they passed on and they sell the estate, I was set to go back to work. Then the economy tanked. And that's what happened. 
You see that? So you think Yeah, where I used to work, there used to be 30,000 engineers. I worked for Lockheed in California. Uh, now there's 3,000. So where are they going? Boeing's laid off, North of Boeing's laid off. So where do we go? I had a friend who worked for NASA in Texas. He got laid off too. Yeah. I applied for a NASA contract when I was in Cleveland. Um, and then the contract was canceled. That was like three months ago. So it's just simply bad luck. And when you have no money, it's very difficult to start over. Yeah, it is. And frankly, staying at the shelter has been an experience I don't want to repeat ever in my life. For a lot of people, too. So I'm hoping to find something very, very soon. And I've gotten some contacts. So I'm very hopeful. I knew it was going to be tough in the winter. No one hardly hires in the winter. And now that warm weather's coming, things are beginning to happen. But it's frustrating. I had a position here teaching at a school near Northeastern, teaching mathematics for six months or four months. They only offered $1,000 for the four months. You can't live off of that. Another company in San Francisco begged me to come out there, a startup company. They were developing a product, which was great. And I've done that before. They only offered 15 hours a week. I said, in San Francisco, that's the most expensive city in, in the country outside mm -hmm. of New York. Thousands to rent there. They said, well, you're going to have to come out here on your own or interview out here with someone else and pitch a ride. And I went, go away. And I just hung up the phone. So with the economy this bad, it's difficult. What about Cleveland? That's where you're from. That sounded like a nightmare, what you were telling me. Cleveland's a ghost town right now. Um, there was a time where Saturday morning, there's this area in Cleveland like this called Public Square. It's the main, not the only shopping mall in Cleveland. It's pretty much like that, like the uh, Copley Place all over there. Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, I sat in the middle of the intersection, just like here, and there wasn't a single car on the road. <laughs> I mean, north, south, east, and west. Nothing. I couldn't imagine that. Like, you see all the people in the cars oh, here yeah. to have this downtown this area just be a ghost town. And I, I started thinking, you know, if there's a tumbleweed going by, we're really in trouble. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but it was just nothing. It's just the stores. Every time I go to the mall, it's all different stores, so they all close. Because I see these people, and they're just standing there, and there's no customers. And the politicians aren't doing anything about it. They just get reelected, get their big salaries, and they sit there and do nothing. Our mayor tried to get the Democratic uh, convention. They were one of the nominees for the sites for 2012. And I was there watching him, and he was giving them a tour of Cleveland, and it was so embarrassing because he could offer nothing. We don't even have any hotel space enough for that. So I came here. I was going to start that new job. I was really hoping for it. Big camp. Would you be up to uh, to hear from people if people want to get a hold of you to offer you jobs or anything, writing? Would you be uh, up for that at all? Uh, sure. I have an email or a phone number, a way to contact you? Oh, hundreds. <laughs> okay. So, let me tell you now? Or? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's see. The one I use, most popular, uh, mjnomad at yahoo.com. mjnomad at yahoo.com. MJ's my initials, Maurice. And nomad, I move a lot. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm not looking for a top-of-the-line aerospace. I've been out of the business for a while. Um, one of my problems is I'm so over, I'm so qualified to scare people away. Being a big black guy, I scare people away. <laughs> but um, I just want a chance. Science will be great. Teaching will be great. There's nothing greater than teaching. Teaching physics will be a blast. So um, I'm available. 
Let's see what happens. This guy is hardly scary and very, very friendly. And the knowledge, he, he, he outweighs me tenfold when it comes to intelligence on things. Very well spoken. Get in contact with this guy. It's, it's unbelievable the people that we're meeting out here, like at Boston Homeless, the uh, friend I'm about to go meet can, can put together a website through HTML like, like that. I, I can't comprehend why, why in this country, as great as it is, people with PhDs are in shelters. What? I, I have nothing else to say. Brother, thank you so much. Well, I appreciate the assistance. Absolutely. Hi, this is Kelly from Car Data Video, and today we're going to have a history lesson. Of all the automobiles that have ever been designed and built in the world, there's one that stands out as most significant above them all, and that's the Model T Ford. The Model T introduced mass production and single-handedly brought us from a horse and buggy level of technology to one where we had machines that were run by gasoline engines. Using a moving assembly line, Henry Ford was able to build these things in about one-tenth the time it took to build uh, other vehicles by hand previous to the Model T. The Model T's were simple, they were rugged, they were cheap, and as Henry Ford used to say, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. When they were first introduced in 1909, they sold for $950, which doesn't sound like much to us today. Back then, that was quite a lot of money. Henry Ford cleverly paid his employees $5 a day, which back then was a huge amount of money compared to other jobs that they could get. He also reduced their workday from nine to eight hours, but again, by doing that, he could have three production shifts working and hence build cars around the clock. All of this was going on at a time of uh, economic difficulty and transition, and so the result of this is people would come from all over the country to get jobs working in Detroit at the auto factories, and of course, their job of choice was with Ford. Production of the Model A's went for 19 years from 1908 to 1928. And uh, the last ones that were built, they weren't very much different from the very first ones that he originally produced. They had wooden spoked wheels with metal rims pressed on them. You can see here what they're doing is hand uh, filing the spokes uh, to make them smooth so they can be painted. The engine was a ridiculously simple, by today's standard and light, 177 cubic inch, which is 2.9 liter, four-cylinder engine, uh, which produced 20 horsepower. The vehicle weighed oh, about 1,200 pounds, depending on which body style you got, and would be good for about uh, 40 to 45 mile an hour top speed, and it had two forward gears. The assembly line was split so that the frame and the wheels and tires and everything were assembled at one point, and then the bodies were assembled separately, and then at one point the body would be dropped onto the frame. Over the years, an enormous number of body styles were created. You had a touring car, a roadster, a roadster pickup, a ton truck, a closed cab ton truck, a coupe, a two-door, a four-door, a center door, a station wagon, and a convertible. Uh, pretty versatile vehicle. Eventually, the Model T was replaced by a Model A, which was a modernized, stylized version of a vehicle that looked quite the same. Highland Park was the first modern assembly plant, and it's where the Model T's 
were produced. And uh, just like today, when they're done being assembled, they're driven off the assembly line. But look at these vehicles as they come out. Look at all the different body styles, uh, many of which we read. And these are all just different versions of Model Ts. Finally, after 19 years of production, Henry Ford had actually built almost 15.5 million Model Ts. And uh, they were by far the most popular and the most plentiful vehicle on the road. And here you can see the assembly of the 15 millionth, which is a four-door convertible model. And as you can see, they've added some paint colors other than just black. And that actually is Henry Ford there uh, driving off the assembly line and uh, driving in that uh, 15 millionth Model T Ford. This particular one hadn't gone through final assembly quality control. You can see how Henry had to give a little uh, nudge there to get it shut properly. To start a Model T, you had to hand crank it. But because the engine wasn't very big and it was low compression, all it would take was about a half a turn and it would fire right up. Back then, riding in a car was an occasion. It was a big excursion. It was fun. Uh, just the ride itself was quite entertaining. Keep in mind that uh, going somewhere in a car was probably 10 times faster than going by horse or buggy, which is what they were accustomed to before. Back then, cities were just developing, and most of the roads were terrible, especially the country roads. And so the Model T had to be built in such a way where it could handle anything all the way from no road to city roads, and it actually did a very good job of that. Most of the country roads were mud roads or dirt roads, and in the city there were no snow plows. If it flooded, you had to ford it, and so you just had to deal with all the stuff, and the Model T was miraculous at being able to handle almost any road condition you could imagine. So here you've got the original Ford Model T, the great-great-great-grandparent of most every car you see on the road today. This is Kelly from Car Data Video. When you think of Honda and ergonomics, you might think of the design of the interior of a car. But Honda thinks about the ergonomics of both its customers as well as its associates. With eight North American auto assembly lines at six plant sites, Honda produces 16 distinct Honda and Acura vehicles for more than 1.3 million automobiles every year. That's a lot of manpower on assembly lines. So Honda has a dedicated team working to develop better ergonomics for the health and well-being of its line associates. That work has led to the development of the Super Seat, which is designed to make some line tasks more ergonomic. Honda's manufacturing plant in Lincoln, Alabama opened in November 2001 and is now the sole global source for Honda Odyssey minivans and Pilot Sport utility vehicles. The plant is now using the Super Seat to aid in associates installation of the rear seat belt retaining bolts, a difficult task made easier on the human body with this mechanical aid. The associate in the super seat moves the seat into the body cavity of the vehicle. The large orange platform moves with the seat and is synchronized with the speed of the assembly line. At this point, the associate controls lateral movement into the vehicle by simply walking on their heels, and when the bolts are in place, swings the mechanical arm of the seat back out of the vehicle and it's on to the next. In addition to the rear seat belt installation, Many more processes are being evaluated which could make even further use of the seat and help ease the strain on associate bodies.
Amanda. We're here in Philadelphia. Yeah. You're sleeping out here on the sidewalk. You're pregnant. Tell me about it. Well, about a year ago, um, I lost my five children through DHS due to um, the, my mom had um, custody of them. She had kinship care, and she was allowing me to see the children and also live there at the house. And I was supposed to not live there. I was supposed to leave. Anyway, they got an investigator and found out. So they took the children off my mom and they were placed in foster care. Since then, um, due to my addiction and my homelessness, the stable housing, my and a time frame, my rights have been taken from me for my kids. I haven't seen them since last November, but. I'm pregnant now and I'm clean. I'm in a methadone program and that's it. I'm hoping to keep these two kids and start a new life. Um, but that's how I became homeless. Well, how are you surviving out there? Pretty much just um, little food stamps I receive. I receive cash now, benefits due to being pregnant, but be honest with you, um, you know, begging for food, money, you know, stealing if I have to. If, if, is there any, nobody helping you? My family really wants nothing to do with me. But I mean, um, gosh, there's got to be some social services. You're, you're pregnant, you're out here. I have social, um, I do have support that are helping me get into a uh, mommy and me program. Okay. So now that I'm pregnant, so I have a lot more resources that are willing to help me. You know, I'm only actually I look bigger, but I'm only 15 weeks, so I still have some time just because there's two in there. Winter's coming soon. Yeah. So. And it does matter. Nobody should be out here. Period. Right. So my heart goes out to you. Thank you. You had three wishes. What would they be? To get stable housing, to have all my children back, and to live sober free for the rest of my life. Thank you very much for talking to me. No problem. Nice to meet you. Hi, this is Kelly from Car Data Video, and today we're going to have a history lesson. Of all the automobiles that have ever been designed and built in the world, there's one that stands out as most significant above them all, and that's the Model T Ford. The Model T introduced mass production and single-handedly brought us from a horse and buggy level of technology to one where we had machines that were run by gasoline engines. Using a moving assembly line, Henry Ford was able to build these things in about one-tenth the time it took to build uh, other vehicles by hand previous to the Model T. The Model T's were simple, they were rugged, they were cheap, and as Henry Ford used to say, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. 
When they were first introduced in 1909, they sold for $950, which doesn't sound like much to us today. Back then, that was quite a lot of money. Henry Ford cleverly paid his employees $5 a day, which back then was a huge amount of money compared to other jobs that they could get. He also reduced their workday from 9 to 8 hours, but again, by doing that, he could have three production shifts working and hence build cars around the clock. All of this was going on at a time of uh, economic difficulty and transition, and so the result of this is people would come from all over the country to get jobs working in Detroit at the auto factories, and of course their job of choice was with Ford. Production of the Model A's went for 19 years from 1908 to 1928, and uh, the last ones that were built they weren't very much different from the very first ones that he originally produced. They had wooden spoked wheels with metal rims pressed on them. You can see here what they're doing is hand uh, filing the spokes uh, to make them smooth so they can be painted. The engine was a ridiculously simple, by today's standard and light, 177 cubic inch, which is 2.9 liter, four-cylinder engine, uh, which produced 20 horsepower. The vehicle weighed oh, about 1,200 pounds, depending on which body style you got, and would be good for about uh, 40 to 45 mile an hour top speed and it had two forward gears. The assembly line was split so that the frame and the wheels and tires and everything were assembled at one point and then the bodies were assembled separately and then at one point the body would be dropped onto the frame. Over the years an enormous number of body styles were created. You had a touring car, a roadster, a roadster pickup a ton truck, a closed cab ton truck, a coupe, a two-door, a four-door, a center door, a station wagon, and a convertible. Uh, pretty versatile vehicle. Eventually the Model T was replaced by a Model A, which was a modernized, stylized version of a vehicle that looked quite the same. Highland Park was the first modern assembly plant, and it's where the Model T's were produced. And uh, just like today, when they're done being assembled, they're driven off the assembly line. But look at these vehicles as they come out. Look at all the different body styles, uh, many of which we read, and these are all just different versions of Model T's. Finally, after 19 years of production, Henry Ford had actually built almost 15 and a half million Model T's. And uh, they were by far the most popular and the most plentiful vehicle on the road. And here you can see the assembly of the 15 millionth, which is a four-door convertible model and as you can see they've added some paint colors other than just black and that actually is Henry Ford there uh, driving off the assembly line and uh, driving in that uh, 15 millionth Model T Ford. This particular one hadn't gone through final assembly quality control. You can see how Henry had to give a little uh, nudge there to get it shut properly. To start a Model T, you had to hand crank it, but because the engine wasn't very big and it was low compression, all it would take was about a half a turn and it would fire right up. Back then, riding in a car was an occasion. It was a big excursion. It was fun. Uh, just the ride itself was quite entertaining. Keep in mind that uh, going somewhere in a car was probably ten times faster than going by horse or buggy, which is what they were accustomed to before. Back then, cities were just developing, and most of the roads were terrible, especially the country roads. And so the Model T had to be built in such a way where it could handle anything all the way from no road to city roads, and it actually did a very good job of that. Most of the country roads were mud roads or dirt roads, and in the city there were no snow plows, 
if it flooded, you had to ford it. And so you just had to deal with all the stuff. And the Model T was miraculous at being able to handle almost any road condition you could imagine. So here you've got the original Ford Model T, the great-great-great-grandparent of most every car you see on the road today. This is Kelly from Car Data Video. When you think of Honda and ergonomics, you might think of the design of the interior of a car. But Honda thinks about the ergonomics of both its customers as well as its associates. With eight North American auto assembly lines at six plant sites, Honda produces 16 distinct Honda and Acura vehicles for more than 1.3 million automobiles every year. That's a lot of manpower on assembly lines. So Honda has a dedicated team working to develop better ergonomics for the health and well-being of its line associates. That work has led to the development of the Super Seat, which is designed to make some line tasks more ergonomic. Honda's manufacturing plant in Lincoln, Alabama opened in November 2001 and is now the sole global source for Honda Odyssey minivans and pilot sport utility vehicles. The plant is now using the Super Seat to aid in associates installation of the rear seat belt retaining bolts, a difficult task made easier on the human body with this mechanical aid. The associate in the super seat moves the seat into the body cavity of the vehicle. The large orange platform moves with the seat and is synchronized with the speed of the assembly line. At this point, the associate controls lateral movement into the vehicle by simply walking on their heels, and when the bolts are in place, swings the mechanical arm of the seat back out of the vehicle and it's on to the next. In addition to the rear seat belt installation, Many more processes are being evaluated which could make even further use of the seat and help ease the strain on associate bodies. So how did the Model T and the assembly line change America? 
for the assembly line, uh, uh, industrial production in the United States is really craft-based, and you can go all the way back to the colonial era. I think it was, um, in terms of mass production, certainly, uh, I, the quality was very high, um, but it also was very limited because they could only turn out so much in a single day. The wheel is put onto its own assembly line, so it can be put onto the larger object, like the car, moving past. It certainly upped production tremendously. Uh, uh, cars are rolling out now 24 hours a day. Um, I think probably the biggest loss of it was that uh, of the moving assembly line uh, was what it did to the worker because from a craftsman the worker now became part of the assembly line. He became just another piece on it, relatively unskilled, trained to do one simple repetitive job over and over again. But there were also very many upsides to the assembly line. Ford's workers were pretty well paid. Uh, he introduced a $5 day. Thanks to high production, he was able to cut the cost of his cars so that virtually uh, every middle-class family in America could afford one. In 1908, it was $850. In 1914, after the assembly line, it was $650. The price continually dropped to $265 while his competition sold it for more than $1,000. And finally, Ford sold the Model T at $189. The low prices of the Model T were one of the main reasons 15 million were made. The Model T, so many were made, it would cover the area of the Namib Desert. Well, first of all, it was a very reliable, reasonably priced automobile built out of very strong steel. So it was able to be purchased by the average working person. But also, industrially, the car was a very uh, adaptable power platform for hauling produce, plowing even plowing a field, or powering a mill. As you can see, the Model T is a very sturdy and reliable platform. Other tractors from the same generation have completely rusted through. The average working person who didn't have enough money to buy a tractor or anything. This car could be easily converted into a tractor. So as far as that part, yes, it did uh, affect the country uh, very much in the industrial way. Socially, the Model T greatly affected America. It is a good thing it came along because there are very many impracticalities with the horse and buggy. For one, it was very expensive and caring for a horse year-round was much more expensive than the Model T. To get the horse and buggy, it would have cost $487 together, plus $50 for the food and $28 for the place to live for the horse. So in one year, it would have cost $568. Second of all, the horse and buggy was not able to go over the bumps and rivers the Model T was able to. All of this new mobility allowed people to live in the rural areas. The 
allowed you to run into town or back home and in, a, in less than a day. Uh, what would have happened had Ford not brought in the moving assembly line? Um, it, it's unimaginable in a way because we couldn't have had the, a modern American uh, capitalist economy as we understand it today. Today, if the big three fail because of low sales, would America go back to the time when power was out of reach for most families? If so, then our addiction will lead us into a tailspin in transportation. Okay, today's uh, It's My House. We've been playing. Well, I'll explain the show. The title is titled for today's broadcast is The Assembly Line. The Assembly Line. And we played some audios on, you know, how Henry Ford basically um, innovated that. I mean, he wasn't an originator of it, but he used it innovatively uh, to mass produce cars. Um, and we want to tie that into what we'll be doing uh, offline with. Uh, various houses and from tiny houses and solar projects and all that type of thing. Now, in between, I've been playing audio of homeless people. One guy with three degrees, he's a Ivy League guy, homeless, a pregnant homeless woman in Philadelphia, um, a family living out of a RV recreational vehicle, and I'm about to play before we go to our phone lines. A woman, um, guess she's retired, living off of uh, $800 a month, but she's living in her either car or van, one of the two. Anyway, well, let's listen to her, and then we'll go to the phone lines, and then bring bring this assembly line thing to these various markets of people who don't have what appears to be adequate housing. Hi, everyone. We're st I am still at the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous. We're going to shoot another video. We're going to meet Dee, who lives in her car, and we're going to find out how and why and, uh, and just see what we can learn and share with others to help them in their journey into being a nomad and living their best possible life. So Dee, say hello. Hello. And uh, why don't we just begin with the idea of how did you end up living in your car? Um, I was transient most of my childhood and as an adult I lived a civilized life and everything. Um, I, in the last, uh, four years ago I got a divorce tried living on my own it was very hard it was almost impossible and I finally got to the point where I couldn't pay the bills um, I ended up going back to my ex-husband for five months a very volatile situation I can't continue living like that so here I am I've been watching Bob's videos on YouTube and it made me think I could do it and so on the first of this month I took off at first I prepared my car and um, 
I do have some income, not much. <laughs> do, do you mind if I ask how much income you have? I live on Social Security, a little over 800 a month. Right. And I have some bills, but not a lot. And um, so. Um, and that's nearly impossible to do in in any traditional mm -hmm. home apartment. Yeah. I mean, that's your whole apartment. Well, I couldn't buy food. Right. I couldn't even buy food. I had to get free food, and it was hard. I couldn't pay. There, were, I couldn't buy anything. Nothing. After I couldn't go. Rent. Couldn't go with a friend for a five-dollar McDonald's. Nothing. Right. And I got tired of that too. It was not a good luck. No, it was not. And because you have been uh, a person who traveled and was transient, this appealed to you. I always loved camping. Out of my five, there were five of us kids, but out of the five, I think I loved the camping. I did it when I was raising my kids. Took them camping all the time. I love camping. So the lifestyle is wonderful. I love it. I love the freedom. I love the fresh air. I love the camaraderie, camaraderie I think you say it. Uh -huh. uh, meeting people. Um, finding other people that are just like me. You don't find that in the city. No. So. Everyone's afraid of each other in the yeah, city. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so this was the car you had. Right. It's a Pontiac, 2005 Pontiac Grand Am. Uh, it's a it's a six cylinder, and four door, and I really did have to do some changing to make it work. Mm -hmm. So. And so far, so it's only been a, a, a month, about right, a month. about a month. And uh, you're it's a little too early to know, but so far so good. So far so good. I'm going. I'm de I'm determined. I can do it for a few years in this. Like to upgrade to a van and become a van camper, but <laughs> in the meantime, this is the way I have to live, and I'm not unhappy about it. Good, because you're a nature girl right. camper anyway. Right. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's take. How do you the let this car go past? And then a couple questions that I know everyone's going to ask when you live in a car. Uh, you support yourself with a Social Security check. Yeah. And uh, how do you go to the bathroom? Well. It's hard in a car, it's so you have to hard. really, you really have to work it out. Um, I have two things. I have a, a pee bucket, basically, which I do not line, and um, I do have a lid for it, and I've actually kind of so covered it with a soft lining because women don't like to sit on these hard plastic things. Right. And um, then I funnel it into a one-gallon, oops, sorry, Dolly, <laughs> that's my dog, Dolly. Okay. Um, I funnel it into a one-gallon water jug, mm -hmm. um, and then I dump it where it needs to be dumped. Um, for the other job, number two, <laughs> basically poop. <laughs> I all have, do it. I have another bucket that is the same size that I fit into that bucket, and I line it with a good plastic bag, and I do my business. And then I take the business and I twist it and I fold it over again and I twist it again and I fold it over again. I do about four times and then I put it into a Ziploc bag. So there's no smell. Right. And I don't have to think about it after that. I'm right. done. Right. And, um, That's exactly what I do. It's quick and it's convenient and then I dump it when I get to somewhere where I can. Um, if it gets uncomfortably like too much. Then I'll go ahead and find a place to take it. Right. But, but it really hasn't been a problem at all. Um, and the other thing I did when I set up my car for this is I made sure that I had a bench. Um, a lot of your vans can use five-gallon buckets. 
If I use a five-gallon bucket, you're going to see my rear end in the in the window. Right. I have a two-gallon bucket. Right. Which is perfect, and I put a board. I well, I don't know if you want me to describe how I set this up, but um. Well, you took out. Looks like you took I out took, your back seat. I took out the passenger seat and the back seat, and I built a wooden frame. And I put a five-inch memory foam mattress on there. I cut it down. I bought a twin size and I had to cut it all down. But it fits really nice, and it's the full length, and it only goes to the trunk. So I still have my whole trunk available. And then I built a wooden seat here, and I have a pillow up there that actually sits on this as a cushion. So this is so you lounge right here. I can lounge there. I can sit my bucket on there. I can bathe. If I have to be in my car, I have a one-burner butane stove that I can sit because that bench is very stable. I can sit this stove on there, and I don't have a problem with the wind, and I can cook. And I don't know if you've got the propane heater there. I see you have a Mr. Buddy. Yeah, and the only thing you have to do when you have a Mr. Buddy in a car is you have to make sure that you have about three inches of air ventilation. Now, that Mr. Buddy will burn me out. Right. Five minutes is all it takes to heat up my car. And I use Reflectix um, on my windows. I didn't really need the Velcro, but I'm using it. But if you're going to use Velcro, you need a stronger glue because the glue on the back of Velcro is terrible. Right. Uh, so I just cut them to shape. One of the things that I did with my car, because it's going to be my living um, home, is that I, when I took my seats out, I took up the carpet and put Reflectix under the carpet so that the floor is not pulling up a lot of cold. Right. You got So you have Reflectix under Right. Underneath the rug. Right. And then one of the other things that I need to do, and I didn't do it, but I just put plastic between the bed and what have you in the trunk mm -hmm. to keep out some of the cold from the trunk. I will eventually put a board there that can also convert into a table because I will make screw-on legs. The little basket over there in the corner, one of the hardest things to do is when you're going to the bathroom is to find the toilet paper in a car. Oh, yeah. So that's where I keep my wipes and my toilet paper hooked in a basket and bungeed to one of the little hooks up there. And what's the tarp for? And the tarp is just between the seat and the trunk. It should be a board, but right now it's a tarp. Right. So kind of uh, insulation? Yeah, to keep some of the cold from the trunk from coming into the car. And you just built, uh, you just made blocks. It's, um, I was showing you from the other side. Yeah, we can see it from the other side. Okay. Um, well, taking out the passenger seat and the back seat really opened it up. It made so much room in here. I mean, that is um, almost 24 inches wide. So two feet. At, in the house that I was in, I had a 24-inch wide bed, believe it or not. That is pretty small. So, yeah. But what I have here is a memory foam mattress that I covered with a wool. I made this myself. I just took a, a wool blanket and sewed it over it, so nothing really sticks or, you know, sometimes the the foam, you know, it kind of causes everything to not move. Right. So this moves, and I just put a regular sheet on it and tuck it under, and then here's the board. I used two-by-twos and half-inch plywood, and I'm not sure if I can do this, Bob, but this is interesting. Um, 
I don't do this often, but, oh, incidentally, you can use this for storage also, I mean, for putting things under the mattress. So I have lots of things under here. I have a flip-up, I have it actually hinged or coming up this way. All right. So that I can get in. So direct access. So the under room. there is my clothes. This is my dirty clothes and my medications, because I take a few. Um, I just there's a lot of cubbies you can stuff things right, in. Right. And in the front, you can see. Um, under here I have a ton of stuff. I crochet. I have a toolbox up there on the front. I have a bag with crochet, yarn, needles, and stuff. I have a sewing box here. I have all my propane bottles under there and a little bag with my dog's toys and jackets and what have you. And then on this part, actually, that screen tent over there uh -huh. fits in there, and my lantern with the case also fits in there. Wow. So it's just a ton of room under there to put things. Um, I don't have a bunch of electricity or electrical products. So, um, I found a 5 watt solar kit. Doesn't have the battery pack or anything. So I just plug directly into it and charge my iPad and my cell phone. Right. Has both a lighter plug and a USB. Mm -hmm. I have a 150 watt power inverter that I plug into my cigarette lighter or this. And I have electrical plug on that with a USB that I can use. I have two solar lights. One is the, what's it called? The Lucy? The Lucy light, which was $15 at Walmart. Mm -hmm. And it makes the inside of that car so bright, I couldn't believe it. I just got it yesterday. I have another light that I bought on Amazon for $10. It's a three-way light. You can operate it strictly on solar, just charge it up every day in the sun, and you've got light for eight hours. Or I can plug it into USB to charge it. Or I can put batteries in it. So it's wonderful because it serves me no matter where I'm at, no matter what the weather right. conditions are. It's rainy, you can put in batteries exactly. and so I have, um, because of the way I designed the inside of the car, I have tons of room. Oh yeah, look at that in huge uh, trunk. trunk. The one thing that takes up a lot of space that I do have is my camping kitchen, but it does right. fold up to the size of this rectangle and about five inches deep. And because of my handicaps, I can't do a lot of squatting and bending. Mm -hmm. So I'm able to stand there and um, cook. So my screen tent was about $40. I think I bought it about 12 years ago. And this, what year is your Pontiac Grand Am? It's a 2005. 2005. Yeah. It's, um, it's what you have. Yeah, it's it's what I had. And you probably get pretty good gas mileage out of it? I get between 25 and 28 miles to the gallon. That's, which is good. Which I'm not going to get that in any other vehicle. No. So if I have to move around a little bit, it's not costing me a fortune. Right. I spend no more gas traveling than I would in town going to the store every day and doing stuff like that. So. Right. Um, it's really good. Maintenance is a lot cheaper on a car than it is on a larger vehicle. Very much. And um, I just recently, last year, spent a little money putting on new wheels and rims. Mm -hmm. um, and did all a lot of work by myself, believe it or not. I'm 64 years old, but I've been disabled for the last four years. I worked for eight years, and I was disabled five years before that in a wheelchair. So I've worked my way out of all of that. 
um, just by hard work and determination. So, um, so a lot of what you want to do is because the car is tiny, but you're on public land for right, the most part, right. you're going to get outside and live outside. Right, and that's where the screen tent comes in. I'm thinking of getting a, t a, a dome tent with a screen tent on it, but this is going to do for a while. And what I've done is set up the screen tent right next to my car, and then in here, I purchased this camp kitchen on Amazon for about $110, I think. Maybe not even that much. And it's great because it has your top for your stove. It does come with a windscreen, but it's short, so I add reflectus to make it a little higher. It has a great little cloth cupboard with a hard tray in the bottom so that it doesn't dip. Mm -hmm. This here is a fold-out, and it has a sink. And it has a dish rack. Cooler. Uh-huh. And um, I have a, a, a medium-sized cooler. It's a three-day cooler, which is wonderful because with block ice, it will actually last four or five days. Mm -hmm. And then this is a collapsible water jug, mm -hmm. which is great. I bought this with the sunshade. I don't really need the sunshade. I wish mm -hmm. I hadn't bought the sunshade one because right. it takes up a little more room. But everything is compact. My little table I've had for about 30 years. Uh -huh. and it's a little folding table. It right. just collapses like these chairs do. And my little tripod. When, now for storage. Um, for one thing, I keep a gallon water jug. And I keep it for grease or little bits of gray water that have a lot of food or something in it. You can strain gray water, get the food out of it, and then you don't feel so bad about when you have to dump water. Mm -hmm. um, I keep a thing here with three different sizes of Ziploc bags because they're good for everything. Mm -hmm. I save all my grocery bags. I use those for trash or for whatever, and when I run out, I still have other bags. I have three pots. That's all I carry. I have a little skillet with a folding handle. I have a small pot and a medium pot. This is not a huge pot. These are stainless steel, so they don't burn, they don't stick, and they're wonderful. They're wonderful. I do everything in them. That's my pots and pans. All my dishes are in this bag. I get collapsible things as much as possible. That's a collapsible bowl. And then the silicon, you saw that yesterday, the silicone strainer. I had another one, too, which is a collapsible strainer. That's more of a steamer. And I'm, I'm, I don't have all collapsible yet. I made some things. I don't know if you saw the bag on the back of my seat, on yeah, the driver's seat. I did. Yeah, okay. So that's got all those goodies. I like to, I'm a crafty person sometimes. And I made these bags out of towels that have slots. And I still have to put the straps on them so that I can hang them. And then I have easy access to all of my utensils. I have one for cooking utensils and one for my silverware. And I made those, just sewed some seams down them. And I do keep a cutting board because I don't want to cut on this. So by cooking out, you save a substantial amount of money and eat a little healthier. Right. And the windscreen keeps me from using quite as much fuel. Right. Um, all my food is stored in these bags. I got these at the dollar store or something, Dollar General, for $1.99 a piece. They're vinyl and they're zippered bags. Yeah. And so if they're empty, like plastic, I started out with nothing but plastic containers. Mm -hmm. They took up so much space. 
And so I said, I've got to do something because I'm just too cramped. I bought these, and they're, they're collapsible, so you can stick them in nooks and crannies if there's hardly anything in them. Right. And I separate my dry goods from my canned goods, and then the other one is for, like, taller bottles and things. Mm -hmm. And I have another one that I just have been putting water in, but, I mean, I could put other things in it. I think these would be great for clothing bags, too, because they're covered. And um, that's pretty much it. I do have a thermos because I don't want to have to keep reheating water. Right. And well, your experience as a camper has just really paid off for you. Yeah, it's helped me a lot because I'm not afraid of camping. And coming to your seminar has helped me not to be afraid of predators. Right. <laughs> okay, so um, this seminar that... Uh, the RTR that um, you give every year has an abundance of information for anybody who's trying to survive. Why don't you come on out in the sun? I'm sure. Not sure, anyone can see you. Okay, but um, I, I'm learning a lot of survival skills here. It's a great place to make connections with people. I've met some really nice people that we're going to connect. Along the, throughout the year, you know, and maybe meet up in different places. And so I'm, I'm just really happy to be here, and that's, that's about it, Bob. Indeed, <laughs> well, it's amazing. I do want to introduce my little dog. This is Dolly. <laughs> and Dolly's she, in the shade. And she is my best friend and companion, and she loves camping. <laughs> She's keeping her eye on that camera. Yes, she is. <laughs> Well, Dee, I think you've given a lot of hope to a lot of people who are a lot of women, and men too, are in your situation. And the fact that you took your seats out is amazing because it's a huge amount of room in there. We have YouTube videos that tell you exactly how to do it on almost any car. Right. And there's YouTube videos on how to make your bed too. So um, a little creativeness and a little, you know, take a little bit from what they give you and modify it to fit yourself. Right. I couldn't sleep on just an air mattress or those um, one-inch foam because of my health, uh, because I have some really bad back and neck problems and fibromyalgia and a m bunch of other things. But with that memory foam mattress, I sleep like a baby. And I don't even use a sleeping bag. I'm using a down comforter folded in half. And it's so warm, I never get cold in bed. Wow, that's never. Great. We've had some cool nights, too. So, yes, we have. Um, it gets cool in the car, right. but it doesn't get cool in my bed. Right. So. Well, I think you've given a lot of hope to a lot of people that this is a good life and they can do it. Yes. Anybody can do it if you want to or if you have to. You're at a head start because you're a camp. You like camping anyway, mm -hmm. but anyone can figure it out. Right. Well, Dee, thank you so much uh, for your sharing your experience with us and your hope. And uh, I'm really glad that, that uh, we can share this with so many other people. Thank you. And everyone, I thanks for watching this video, and I hope you liked it and learned something. And uh, and uh, like us on YouTube and subscribe to the channel. And we'll talk to you later. All right, we um. Today's podcast is titled The Assembly Line, and uh, we're going to relate that to some of the videos we played today, which featured homeless people or 
people who had alternative housing, like the lady we just heard, that was in the car, uh, that's living out of our car on an $800 a month budget. So we'll be back in about one minute to open up our phone lines uh, to merge these two, kind of, I mean, the assembly line and how, at least how my vision is on how to, to merge it into some of these different markets of people uh, with their housing uh, challenges. Where we're moving on. And that song's familiar to many of the people. That's Jonay Dubois, better known as Walona, uh, from Good Times singing that. Uh, and the assembly line uh, was a way that helped globally a whole lot of people move on up. Um, now, that saying, like, now we all know Henry Ford, and there's really no one person that had, has can lay claim that they invented the automobile. All right, there's various people that have made contributions, but what Henry Ford did was he, he and he was he wasn't the originator of the assembly line, but he applied the innovation. He he, he applied it to assembling cars because he didn't manufacture cars. Um, and we got that information plus seven. He assembled cars. He wasn't the only one, but he applied the assembly line process to it and moved on up. All right, well, we played various videos of people that were homeless, living in the shelter, sleeping on the street, pregnant and homeless. Um living in a car. So there are various types of communities that can accommodate people that want to move on up in their various housing or no housing situations. So we're not going to get too much into that today because it's Friday, but we will open up the phone lines and then get right back to it next week and utilize our down downtime period, which we've been talking about this past week, um, for planning uh, on organizing um, our assembly line uh, to tap in on the, the mar- various marks of people that need a- adequate housing. 773, your mic is open. 773, 
<laughs> what are you doing? Verifying why I told you I've been living for 35 years? <laughs> what are you doing? Well, you had a, a mobile house and a stationary yeah, house. Out there on yeah, the road. right. Yeah. And you see, you can and do that. And the mobile house was your business also. That's right. <clears throat> Living in my office, my automobile for travel, my job, everything, all in that truck. Everything mm-hmm. was right there in my truck. My CB radio for communication, right there in the truck. That's when we didn't have cell phones. So, you know. And no internet connection. No, no internet. Uh-uh. Nope. You know, I, I like those videos that you play, and I think you need to keep, put them on a the wall if the way you can go back and people talk about what they can't do. You should oh, try this on the side. Because I think the one room schoolhouse is going to be one of the key things that you can be teaching along with these videos that you're playing so people can actually see what they're missing and how we talk about reparation and how reparation is in hand reach. Are you going to go stoop over it and pick it up? Right. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's there. It, it, nobody have a... Well, now, you, you were a truck out there for 35 years, so I guess you saw all kind of situations, uh, particularly, you know, some were geographically, you know, uh, unique. What now, because you mentioned something yesterday, which I I, I, I want to jump on board that, where you do workshops or demonstrations or whatever, and you go to the people mobily like you did for 35 years. So what do you see out there where people, you know, you'd have to bring Bring the information in. What what kind of uh, you know things that you saw over thirty five years, which many of those people or even communities still exist? Some, what do you suggest? Well, one of the first things, one of the first things, uh, L.A. is that you can't teach what you don't know. That's one of the right. very first. And with this lady with the seventeen children. That lady, when you played yep. the other video of how much money she could make in a day, would be more yeah, than enough yeah. for her and the right. children. All mm-hmm. of this ties together. But if she'd never been exposed to how she could take her children and put them to work doing lines, then she would never know how to supply the need for her and consumption for her and her children. Because a lot of people hasn't not been exposed economics because they didn't hear it as a word. It's not just a word. It's something that you do. Like this lady living in the car. She got tired. She was tired of her husband. What really forced her into creating something for herself. But a lot of people is not creative unless it's dumped on them to where they can actually see it. So I think that the system has failed us, and we have got inundated with sitting, waiting for somebody to do for us. 
this lady that's living in that car could have been sitting waiting for somebody to do for her, and she wouldn't be comfortable. But she has everything to practice she needs in the car, starting all the way back to the Model A. My uncle worked for Chrysler all of, uh, after he came out of the Army. He worked for Chrysler until he retired. He worked for them about 30 years in Detroit, assembling cars. And as I have mentioned to you a couple of times before, cars are not made, they are assembled. And I picked up those parts all over the country to take them to the assembly plants where they were made. Like Autolite, if you know anything about Chrysler, that used to be a, the Autolite is a spark plug that goes in the engine. I used to pick up a load of Autolite out of the plugs and take them to the assembly. So when I talk about assembly, no one person does anything. There is lots of hands go into doing whatever we are consuming, and we have to be the persons that teach this. This is not in a school book. None of the stuff that you have been playing on video is in a position to teach anybody how to assemble automobiles, how to live in a car, how all of this fits together for life. These are life things that we're talking about here today is how to survive and be comfortable surviving so that you can pass it on to your children so that they can survive. This lady with 17 children, how are, they, how are they going to learn how to survive if she doesn't know how to teach them how to do it? Nobody else is going to step in there and just teach them. You, you heard the lady talk right. about they did, all, they did all they could to help her. Instead of things, you heard the man said that her thing was sitting on the street. Well, the street's not going to help them. You have to teach them right. how to utilize. You have to teach them how to utilize that stuff. They're born born into, and that's our job. And uh, you know, when before slavery was over, and since slavery has been over, look at what our people did because of teaching each other. When they was in Africa before they came, was brought to America. They were survivors. They was builders. They built houses without roofs and tapes and all that other stuff that we use today. We use squares, roofs, tapes, saws, all kinds of stuff. We stopped being creative because the older people died off. Now, let's go back to something that a lot of people don't like me to talk about. If you go back and look at the Willie Lynch letter, in 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 depth teaching, it taught the mother how to be a person to teach the children not to be independent, not to be independent, to wait on somebody else to tell you what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. That willingness letter is in force today. While we've been sitting around waiting for somebody to give us something, we could just reach right out, unify, take 10 people, 20 people, 30 people, 40 people, 18 people, whatever it takes, project, and get busy and start doing what we have to do. It's not about how much money you earn on the front end. It's how much you want you win on the back end. 
the back end mm-hmm. is where you the back end is where you get you get your blessing, not only your blessing, but you get to live along jeopardy. Uh, if I had took my front end and do did then what I'm doing now on the back end, I'd been ready, I'd have been probably setting up some place down near you in Florida or California somewhere to where it's warm in the winter. But no, uh-huh. I prefer I prefer staying in Chicago because I came here in 1959 and I made it my home. And I made a good living at it. But I didn't get to understand the downtime, how I could help a lot of people until after my son died. And that was in 1991. That's when it came to me. It hit me of what you are playing today, how you must have a vested interest in the capitalistic system if you want to play the game the way you can sit in Washington, D.C. and make decisions and be a person, uh, they call it a politician, but be a person that actually make laws to protect the people. But the people that's in office now are making laws to incarcerate people, and that's enslaved people. We got to learn the difference between how to in, how you enslave a person so that person will never be independent. Never, ever be independent. And you said something early on in some of the broadcasts. You don't want to live in a city if you can afford to live in a rural area because of the incorporation that it imposes on people that live there. The... Um, Pembroke would take that for 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 an example. This people, these this organization was founded eighteen hundreds. What was wrong with them having a similar assembly plant in Pembroke within that time when all the people lived there? What's been wrong with that? Because it wasn't taught the value and the quality that it would afford them if they had built an assembly plant and worked together and everybody may have a good living, they wouldn't mm-hmm. have, they wouldn't be homeless now and living in trailer homes with no running water at this day and age in the eighteen hundreds if they had to work together and took a shovel and built and, and created a ditch or whatever they needed for their running water. All of these things have to be taught. All of is a part of the educational system. And the other thing is the American dream. All of that stuff is a part of the American dream if you're dreaming. Dr. King said he had a dream, and they killed him. But in that dream, we should have been making caskets like crazy from for the last 50 years until now, but nobody showed it to us. What was he saying? There was something in the speech that he was that he made. I've been to the mountaintop, and they shot him. Right. Shouldn't we have? Shouldn't we have taken and said, "Wait a minute, what did he mean by that?" There's a message in everything. Now let's go back for for a minute. 
was the people was picking cotton and singing in the fields and communicating because there was no phones and they were so far away from each other. The only thing they could hear was songs. There was a message that they was giving each other when they went to church and the preacher was preaching. He preached because there was a message in the sermon, but we never got the message. We never picked up on the message because we wasn't taught that there was a message to find it. So those of us that was fortunate enough to listen to the speech and pick up on the message, we fared pretty well in a capitalistic system. We've done pretty good in accordance to the way we live. Now, right. uh, uh, Bianca opened up the worm, can of worm yesterday. He said, why can't we suggest to this lady with 17 kids to be a surgeon mother? If you tie surgeon mother to surgeon families and in the condition that we are in today, are we a are we a nation of surgeon families that's living in America today? We don't have anything, but we got a bunch of children, and we expecting people to supply the money to educate to educate our kids. And when they do supply, what little money they supply, they miseducate us and our children. So it's a message in what. He said yesterday. Are we? So let me. Certain? I got an audio here. Pleasant. I got an audio here. That I want to play. It's about uh, three minutes. Not long. Three minutes. I'm going to play that and see if we can come up with some solutions with this uh, particular young lady that happens to be in Philadelphia and homeless. Amanda, we're here in Philadelphia. Yeah. You're sleeping out here on the sidewalk. You're pregnant. Tell me about it. Well, about a year ago, um, I lost my five children through DHS due to um, the, my mom had um, custody of them. She had kinship care, and she was allowing me to see the children and also live there at the house. And I was supposed to not live there. I was supposed to leave. Anyway, they got an investigator and found out. So they took the children off my mom and they were placed in foster care. Since then, um, due to my addiction and my homelessness, no stable housing, my and a time frame, my rights have been taken from me. For my kids, I haven't seen them since last November. But I'm pregnant now and I'm clean. I'm in a methadone program, and that's it. I'm hoping to keep these two kids and start a new life. Um, but that's how I became homeless. Well, how are you surviving out there? Pretty much just um, little food stamps I receive. I receive cash now, benefits due to being pregnant. But to be honest with you, um, you know, begging for food, money, you know, stealing if I have to. Is, is, is there any, nobody helping you? My family really wants nothing to do with me. But I mean, um, gosh, there's got to be 
some social services, you're you're pregnant. You're out here. I have social. Um, I do have support that are helping me get into a uh, mommy and me program. Okay. So hopefully now that I'm pregnant, so I have a lot more resources that are willing to help me. You know. I'm only actually, I look bigger, but I'm only 15 weeks, so I still have some time just because there's two in there. But winter's coming soon. Yeah. So. And it does matter. Nobody should be out here, period. Right. So, my heart goes out to you. Thank you. You had three wishes. What would they be? To get stable housing, to have all my children back and to live sober free for the rest of my life. Thank you very much for talking to me. No problem. Nice to meet you. Okay. Now, that lady in Philadelphia homeless and pregnant, uh, has children before this current pregnancy, um, think they're with a with a mother or some other relative. Um, and not knowing the rest of her backstory, typically when you hear at least a little bit of information we heard from that, people like that are typically socially bankrupt. They have little, matter of fact, it sounds like she has zero social capital, which is, that's a very important type of currency. Because with social capital, you go sleep on somebody's couch. Um, anyway, but we want to come up with some strategies from the listening audience. How might, how might she be able to help herself? Uh, get back on her feet. Um, the next audio we played earlier today, but this is a homeless family living in an RV. They have a little bit more social capital. Michelle. Hi. We're here in Eugene, Oregon. We are. You're living in a camper in a church parking lot. I am. Tell me about that. Um. Well, I had an apartment for... Start that, that, uh, this way, I'm going to play it all the way through. I just had to pull, I mean, stop it there. We're going to hear it again. She and her family are in an RV that they own. They're parked in a church parking lot. There's a whole bunch of churches in the United States. I, 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 don't, I don't understand why they don't get it. Something's better than nothing, but because a lot of times when you hear about a homeless ministry at a church, they're typically feeding people. Nothing wrong with that, you know, because people need to eat. But you really should call that a meal ministry or a hunger ministry. Because eating one meal or getting a sandwich to take care of hunger, that is not, in my opinion, solving a homeless situation yet. A lot of these churches call it homeless. 
a homeless ministry. Here you have, I'm going the whole way through this time, a family in an RV that wants a place, that wants a roof over their head, but they're in their RV on the in the parking lot of a church. Criminal. Michelle. Hi. We're here in Eugene, Oregon. We are. You're living in a camper in a church parking lot. I am. Tell me about that. Um, well, I had an apartment for about six months and um, didn't work out so well. So it, it was a mutual termination. And I couldn't find an apartment in the time that I had before I was to move out. So um, I did the next best thing. I looked for an RV on Craigslist. I had to have a roof for my kids for a little bit longer. And um, last time I was homeless, it, 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 I had the van. And um, it, it was okay, but for four people it was a little tight. So I figured, you know, I, I'd have electricity, I'd have all that. I grew up in a mobile home, so an RV wasn't going to be so hard. So I thought. It, it's when they're bigger it's harder because it's tighter but um, um, we're doing it we took off for the, for the mountains um, for a while and uh, tried that and didn't work out so well it was beautiful um, would you think the weather's bad here <laughs> the weather up there is more unpredictable we woke up to about two inches of snow one morning and we started a fire, and it was beautiful, but um, it was too much to get the kids to the actual school bus stop because we were not on the school bus, I mean, the bus line. So, um, how many kids? Uh, I have four altogether, two are grown, I guess you might call them grown. We um, got one that's about to be 18 on the 12th of July, and Mr. Fisherman, which is the nine-year-old. So, um... Yeah, I have two left. And you're saying your your income was cut by a third because of health issues? It, it was. I, I've been putting myself on the back burner um, for a lot of years, you know, taking care of the kids. And um, I've had three jobs at one point. Uh, this time, you know, something started hurting me in my legs, and I just said, forget it. I'm I'm not thinking about anybody but myself and um, went to the doctor the next day. Well, before you found this parking program, what was it like? It was stressful. It was stressful because I didn't want to do the whole um, moving around town. You know, just, you know, oh, this, this spot's okay to sleep. Or, you know, we can only be here for a little bit of time. Um, so I, I really didn't want to do that. That's a whole one of the reasons why I took off to the mountains, because I just wanted to park it and be. That's just I just wanted to to be, and not be bothered and and ridiculed when you know facts are not even they're not even apparent. But um, um, yeah, um. So what's your future like? What are you doing to get out of this? Oh, um, 
Actually, my son is ADHD, the nine-year-old, and I applied for SSI for him and I both because they they couldn't figure out what it was that was causing the pain, and and I've been having pain in my neck and my shoulders for about 15 years now, so I knew it was going to come to a head eventually, and um, so I decided to file for SSI for both of us, and. Um, Trying to get a lawyer for a child is, is really, really difficult. Um, it took me about five or six phone calls before I found one that would take a child. It would take me, but not him. And um, that's not what I needed. So um, depending on what the outcome of that, um, I have to stay off for a full year, which I'm still going to physical therapy and such, um, in order for my SSI case to persevere. If you had three wishes, what would they be? Um, a home, um, I don't need much. I, I really don't need much. I, I don't even, um, I can't even think of anything besides that. So, um, the other things are all really easy, doable. Um. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. You're welcome. Right, well, what kind of strategies can we put together for people? There's scores of people like this all over the place. Now, with just one idea off the top of my head, um, uh, this, this lady well, two. A, you could have some churches that are open-minded enough that, hey, people park in our parking lot, we, we can use that as an outreach. Um, or people who have uh, space available um, in their driveway, more, but more ideally in a, if you got it in a rural place, uh, you can make it like a campground. So those are just two ideas. And you do have people that are working campgrounds that uh, are legally parking safe and this, that, or other. Um, but anyway, and, and then Walmart, they have a lot of Walmart parking lots where Walmart allows uh, a lot of people to sleep in their car, van, camp out. No, not camp out, but stay overnight. Not all of them, but quite a few. So, um, yeah, the lady in the RV with the RV family, she has a little bit more, actually a lot more leverage. Uh, but i like to hear what you guys think about the women in Philly, which can be in any urban city, even small place, where she's homeless, sleeping on the street, and pregnant. I like to say, it sounds like it. She already, she's already got children. With a with relatives or a mother or something like that, so it sounds like, matter of fact, it's very apparent she's socially bankrupt. You can get a whole lot through social capital, but um, one of the main things in order to build social capital, you've got to get along with other people. 
There's, there's no way around it. There's a whole lot of power in being nice. Even if you don't like that person or have no social use for them, the power of nice, gratitude, that's the best, best word. Gratitude can generate a whole bunch of social capital. So if you need to play somebody, play, you know, you know, second on the couch, or maybe they might have a nice, you know, garage. You can stay in the garage, attic that's, you know, pimped out. Gratitude slash nice goes a long way in building social capital where you'll never be homeless. Just saying. Um, and if the social workers don't tell you that, well, maybe some. But social, there wouldn't even be any need for somebody. I, I give you an example before I go to function. In Europe, well, not Europe, but Germany, which is in Europe, Central Europe, particularly in the small towns, there's no such thing, at least in my travels over there, and the time I spent over there, as a daycare center, as we know here in the United States. People essentially, when they need a babysitter or daycare, during working hours or whatever, it was friends or relatives that did. That's a cultural thing over there. Now, over here, you have day, daycare centers because a lot of people, uh, they don't have the social capital for the most part. They drop their kids off um, for the entire work day or whatever overnight, whatever your daycare situation is. So you have daycare centers here in the United States. But like I said, when I, quite a bit of time I spent in Germany. I don't know how it is in other countries, but if you want to open up a daycare center, particularly once you get outside of the big cities, forget it. You have to have social capital. You have to have social capital. And that you generate that through gratitude and the power of N-I-C-E, the power of being nice. Unfortunately, in this country, some people, not all, that go to that social services office, and I'm not judging, I'm just saying, If you're nice to the people coming up, you know, parents, relatives, friends, you will never even have to think about going to the social service office. Real social security is in your social network. Let's go to the phone lines here. Like I said, you know, if you have any suggestions on the lady in Philly, what strategies um, could she use to get off, get up off that street? And mind you, Philly's a nice. Philly's like the large fifth. 
it's in the top ten. At one time, it was the fourth largest city in the United States. I don't know where it stands now. It's probably still in the top ten. And um, in a city of that size, you've got people. Well, they got shelters there. The Salvation Army's there. They got women's shelters. They got men's shelters there. But some, oftentimes, those shelters are full, particularly when it gets cold. It's the middle of July now, but September will be here real quick. And before the end of September, you know, some of those furnaces kick in, you know, because there'll be a cold snap at night um, in a place like Philly. So, um, you know, whatever. So we'll, we'll see what you guys have to say, but I'm just saying the part – like I said, if you if, if you practice gratitude and practice being nice, okay, then you won't have to think about going to Catholic charities or the food pantry uh, or the Salvation Army uh, or whatever. Or if you if you happen to have a Bible study within your church or home. I, I, matter of fact, if, if you look at the miracles of Jesus, and I'm, I, I got to go to the phone, I've got to get. Essentially, they gave thanks. Before all those recorded miracles, somebody was given thanks in advance of those miracles happening. The same, you look up on record for yourself. 267, your mic is on. Yes, thank you for uh, taking my call. I just wanted to make a few comments and ask you a question. Hopefully I won't forget the question after making comments. But I had to push one when you had said that the woman was in the church parking lot. And the quote that often comes to mind is, you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. You teach him how to fish, he eats for a lifetime. And so as it relates to the church, that's the that's the quote that came to mind. Um, unfortunately, in Philly, and I'm sure most big cities, it has thousands and thousands of homeless people um, all over the city, and some tend to flock to, or it appears, I guess, the areas that I travel seem to flock to certain locations. Um, I know they just cleared a certain location because all these people were under a bridge. They often um, do migrate under bridges, which is understandable because it's somewhat of protection from the sun and from, you know, the elements if it's raining or something. But anyway, yes, it's a very unfortunate situation, be it urban, suburban, or even rural. Um, Believe me, there's no matter how rules you get, there are always um, code enforcers to say no, whether you're alleged to own the property or not, or the land. Um, you know, it's limited to what you would put on it, along with it depends on how close your neighbors to may complain as to how long that may go on. I mean, I've seen plenty of shows on TV, even in Alaska, 
which um, every now and then I hear about in reference to regulations, and they're out in the middle of nowhere, and half the time, maybe the next um, person who has a home there might be 80 to 350 miles away, and still they have rules. And today, with all the rules and satellites, you can be spotted one way or another. That's my comment. The other thing was, could you give me your definition for social capital? Social capital, I'll give you an example. It, it's uh, like if you're hungry and uh, you're broke, and you can go to somebody and say, look, I'm broke, broke, broke. I ain't, I ain't eight in a week. Can you give me five dollars so I can go get me a Big Mac some fries and go? Uh, you can't do that with everybody. <laughs> you have to, particularly man, I'm broke. So uh, if you got some social capital with somebody, there's somebody you know that you can go there and just be open and honest with that. Or you can call somebody up on the fly, and I need. Five hundred dollars because I'm about for whatever reason. For whatever reason, I need to pay rent. I need to make my car note. Somebody that you feel comfortable enough with. That that's and that's typically uh, you don't know that person. Um, you haven't just met that person. You probably known that person for a while, and you know you you guys like each other. You're friends, and you know you you. You know, you get along in that type of thing. Um, I, I I understand now. I just thought way. about right. I just thought you about know, what you said. Know, but getting back to you know, you getting back to your situation. Mm-hmm. Say that again. I, I said I apologize. Yes, I'm I, I'm clear now as far as what you mean. But then getting back to your situation, sometimes we think we know people even if they're family members but never live with them, then that's when you really know people or if they're trying to take over your property saying one thing and you thought something else. So, yeah, you really, uh, even when we think we know people, we may not necessarily know them um, because, like you said, after, the afterthought was uh, this woman that you let stay in your property um, with all the family and stuff she had, nobody wanted to take her in because they knew her true backstory and everybody has a story and and that's all well and good Um, and we don't know uh, even if it's a good story we don't know like with the woman in the um, parking lot you know Um, it's always the story part that we don't know so anyway um, and getting as far as as welfare it's all kinds of, of welfare even the people who have big corporations, believe me, they get the most welfare than you would ever probably think about. It was a great article. I have it somewhere still in my possession. It was probably written in the 90s or whatever in reference to welfare. And it stated that the people who get the most welfare are really big corporations. And the first people come to mind is banks when they get bailouts. But the people who don't have the the assets that the banks do, they're the ones to suffer because they really are the ones that pay. And that's my only comment. 
Thank you for taking my question yeah, or comment. Yeah, thanks for the feedback. We'll have to have a, a podcast on that because the, the big distinction between banks and, let's say, normal Joe Blow walking around the street is typically banks, the ones that get the bailouts, they basically funneled a lot of money into politicians for campaign contributions. So they're giving something out and they might get bailed out. They might not get bailed out. There's a lot of S and I don't even. There might be a few SNL saving loans around, but that industry just got gobbled up. Finance companies. I don't. If there are some like the big chain ones like HFC, Household Finance Corporation, they don't exist anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, social capital. Well. You know, in the case of the squatter I had, I ignored the signs because I knew that she had called police on her brother-in-law while in his house, and her sister had that she was that her sister uh, who he was married to, she was married to, uh, or who was married to her brother-in-law. Um, uh, she had came well, she's since died. Uh, but I ignored the fact that she called the police on him, and I didn't totally think about how come she can't go live at her mother's house or her father's house or her uncle's house, and she was headed towards the shelter. The only thing that came to my mind was I never had a problem with it. Because I see anything else, that's their business. But I totally ignored that sign. Something my mother told me. And I had to agree. If a person cannot go to their mother's house and stay on the couch, you don't want to deal with that person. I live in that rule now. So, um, but you're right. Everybody has factors. Yeah, I do. And and building of the social, and that's how you build social capital. Social capital is. Typically, people, uh, you know, go through the ups and downs. They know the, the flaws of people and, and all that other stuff. Um, so, it's just, you know, it, it depends on the tolerance level of those two people. But I guess there's a breaking point for everybody. Um, yes. Yeah, so social capital is it, it, very subjective, and um, there's a high degree of tolerance um, when it comes to that, all it all depends on the people who are involved. But typically, people that go to the that have to go to a shelter, that have to, and then there's some cultures. There, there are a lot of countries in this, this world where there are no social services. Well, so if you can't pay the rent, you don't have a babysitter. You need five dollars to eat, get something to eat, or whatever the currency is of that country. If you don't have any social classes, you're you're just you're out there. There are a lot of countries like that that uh, don't have those. those if you call it a safety, so uh, on there. No matter of fact, you know what? We're gonna probably do Monday's podcast on that. What is social capital and how to build it? 